Hey, this morning, uh, I want to continue in our summer sermon series in the book of Psalms. My name's Eric, and I get the pastor down here, and I've been out for a couple weeks, and I'm so thankful for the guys that have stood in and led this congregation and campus so faithfully through the Word. We're going to continue to do that this morning, so if you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is, well, let's just go ahead and say this, probably one of the greatest pieces of literature in human history. That's all. And so what it's going to provide for us is something that all of us, every single one of us, down to the last person, needs so desperately. As we get started, I want to talk a little bit about what might sound like the most boring topic ever. I want to talk about theology. I know. However, theology is simply faith seeking understanding. Not the other way around. It is faith seeking understanding. The more we believe the more we seek to understand and, and to walk in those ways. Everybody, everybody, 8 billion people on the planet, every single one of them is a theologian. Everybody thinks something about God. Thinking that he's not there is a thought about God. So your atheistic friends, your agnostic friends, your Buddhist friends, your Muslim friends, your Orthodox friends, your enemies across the cubicle, they're all thinking something about God. Everybody is a theologian. Hmm. Theology helps us craft and contour the canal of which our life actually goes. Everybody, 8 billion people on the planet, are trying to figure out how to make life work. And so we all think something about God in some way, either that he's there, that he's not there, that he's good, that he's not good, that he's somewhat powerful, that he's a superhero. Whatever we think, and then we try to live our lives according to that assumption about God. That's called religion. It's simply, as we say all the time around here, it's the organizing narrative of your life. And everybody has a religion. Here's some really discouraging news. Everybody practices bad religion. Did you know that? Yay! Especially here at Bethel. We do. Yeah. Because everybody believes something wrong about God. Theology is a human endeavor. God knows he's not wrong about anything. But all of us, at some level or another, are either incorrect or incomplete about God. And so that creates all sorts of collisions and conflicts and contradictions in our everyday walking around life. Perhaps you've noticed. Life is hard. Why? Well, because life is hard. But also, functionally, most of us are thinking something incorrectly or incompletely about God, and that creates dissonance in our minds, in our souls, and in our relationships. Well, the more we think rightly about God, the more it actually orders our steps. You're going to see that in our text in just a moment. It's going to set us up for our big idea that's going to come out of Psalm 139, and it goes very simply like this. God can do whatever he wants. Now, that might not shock you. Of course he can. But let me put an emphasis on the right syllable. God can do whatever he wants. Now, that's very good news, and I'll explain why here in just a moment. I'm going to read all of Psalm 139. I'm going to invite you to follow along either on screen or in your own Bible. I just want us to hear this text wash over us. As I'm setting this up, I want you to know that Psalm 139 is perfectly symmetrical. There are four verses, not verses, there's 24 verses, but there's four sections. There's four paragraphs or stanzas in Psalm 139, and they're all perfectly ordered. Each one of these is going to give us some 
information to correct or to clarify or to consummate our information, our knowledge, our understanding of God. And each one is six verses long. The first four verses of each are going to tell you the what. You're going to make a declaration about God. And then the, the last two verses of each stanza are going to tell you the so what and now what. So you might say there's a four-verse declaration, there's a two-verse reflection. Four times, four little stanzas in this psalm. Psalm 139. Now your Bible might have this superscription that says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. And that's really important. That means this is the king of the kingdom instructing the people and in how they are to corporately declare the excellencies of God. Do you see that? It's a, there's a lesson in that. We never do theology by ourselves. We'll get it wrong and wronger and wronger. We always do theology corporately in community to sharpen and to hone one another's thinking about God. So to the choir master, this is the inspired hymn book of the nation of Israel. This is what he says. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of these. If I would count them, there are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Wow, that was a quick turn. I don't know if that's usually how you pray. Thanks, God, for my family. Thanks, God, for my job. Kill them. Kill them all, God. Well, we'll get back to this in just a moment. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. I do not, or do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And I do not, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. That's fairly clear. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love that last verse. Come back to that when we're done with the text. I want to walk back through this passage because it's so beautiful. It's 3,000 years old, written by King David for the entire nation, for all of the covenant community, the messianic people, to pray and praise together. 
And it's a declaration about who God is, what God is like, what God has done, and therefore who we are. That's a fundamental aspect to us doing theology together in song, in study of scripture, in corporate praise and worship, all those kinds of things. So let me walk back through this. We're going to get some attributes of God from this psalm to help us think more correctly and completely about God. First is we're going to hear about his uh, omniscience. That means he knows everything. Potential, real, spiritual, physical. God knows everything. Is oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. The word searched is not just looked for. The word is mind. Like you have plumbed the depths of my very being. You have mined me like a copper mine. You've mined me like a diamond mine. You know everything from the deepest corpuscle and sinew to the thoughts and the motivations of my thoughts. You know, the word here for known is yada. It's this intimate experiential familiarity. God doesn't know about you. God knows you. And he just, 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 did you know that? He didn't just know about you. He doesn't know who you are. He's not familiar with your existence. He knows you and loves you anyway. Now, that's the gospel. Right there, first verse. We haven't even gotten to the other 23. That's the gospel. He knows you and all of your motivations, all of your thoughts, all of your musings and meanderings, and loves you anyway. Perfectly Incredible. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. This is a figure of speech. It includes every bit of his day. It's just sort of bookends. You know when I stand up and when I sit down. It's not just talking about his posture. It's talking about the full experience of my day. You know everything in between. You know this stuff experientially and intimately, God. You see, he's confessing. He's working this out. You'll see a little bit of a, of a journey that he goes on, a theological pathway that he's walking on. Verse 3. You search out my path. I want you to keep that idea in mind, the path. As we all try to follow the pathway of our life, that's our religion. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Another figure of speech. You know where I'm going when I stop going, when I lie down finally. You know everything in between. He's declaring God's omniscience. There's nothing he does not know, potential or real. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know what I'm going to say before I know what I'm going to say. And you love me anyway. Can I just, can I just, trans, you know, confession, transparency is good for the soul. I, I have a talking thing. I talk a lot. I know, I know, process that. And God already knows what I'm going to say, how much of it I'm going to say, and how incorrect it's all going to be, and he loves me anyway. You know, he says. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Not because God is looking through the corridors of time and going, oh, he's going to make a limerick out of that. No, 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 no. It's because God exists in the eternal now. And this is when we start to think correctly about God. It should actually begin to impact, influence, and inform our daily walking around thinking, feeling, and experiencing, and relating. All right? You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's interesting. He's going through a progression here, this King David. He starts to feel like, well, gosh, if you know everything and you know me perfectly and deeply and intimately and experientially, then I, I start to feel a little bit confined. You ever thought that? King David does. He continues. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David kind of breaks into some Hebrew Yoda here. It's kind of cool. Wonderful to me it is for much. It's really weird. 
because he's just going, it's, it's just too much. This word wonderful is the term pele. It's uh, what you see in Isaiah 9 which says the government will be on his shoulders. His name was wonderful. Counselor. It's not that he's a really good counselor. His name is wonderful. Counselor. And David says, this is just too much, that you're this kind of God, that you know everything, potential and real, before it even exists, before it even happens. Such knowledge is just too wonderful. It is too high. I cannot attain it. That's the Hebrew way of saying, Kapoosh. I just can't, I, I can't fathom it, he says. So you got four verses declaring God's omniscience, two verses reflecting on that, why it matters, the, the now what and the so what. The second stanza. We're going to turn the page here in verse 7. We're going to talk about God's omnipresence, his omnipresence. We've got his omniscience. He knows everything. His omnipresence. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? These things kind of build on one another. Since you're the kind of God that knows everything, I, I, I feel hemmed in. I can't go anywhere. There's nowhere I can go that you're not. Hmm. I should learn to live like that was actually true. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Which is sort of a confession that, gosh, there are times when I would like to. I'd kind of like to be left alone sometimes, God. Nope, don't get to do that. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. Now, he's not talking about climbing really high or digging a hole. It's, again, a figure of speech to say everything in between. If I go to the highest of the heights or the lowest of the lows, you're there. Sometimes we like to say that, well, omnipresence that just means that God is everywhere. That's really not it. That's not big enough. When you hear the term omnipresence, I, I want you to think thus. There is nothing that is not in God's presence. Real, spiritual. There is nothing that is not in the immediate presence of God. Now, I can promise you, none of us thinks thus persistently and practically. If we really thought that, we really believed that, not just we claimed to believe it, but we actually believed it, it would change our thinking, our feeling. It would even change, gentlemen, that right foot that touches the gas pedal. If you really believed that there was nothing that was not in God's presence, Tommy Nelson always said, the last thing to get saved on a man is his right foot. It's true. But if we really believed that every single thing is in his presence all the time, it would change our thinking, feeling, and relating. It's been said that hell is that place, Sheol, the grave in Hebrew, is that place where God is not. Incorrect. God is the sovereign of hell, not Satan. It's a place of judgment. There is nothing that is not in his presence. We want to think rightly, more fully, more completely, more correctly about this God. Verse 9, I love this language. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, you know what that is? That's the Hebrew way of saying, if I ran with the speed of light. Some of your translations might say the wings of the dawn. When the, when the sun comes up in the east, pew, that first ray of sun, if I was to be able to move that fast, you're already going to be where I would go. It's an amazing thought. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me, that position of strength. Wherever I go, even if it's at the speed of light, you are already present, and I would always be in your presence. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, there is nothing in existence 
that is concealed from the mind and the eye of God. He knows everything, real or potential. There is nothing that is not in his presence. Now, see, this is doing good theology. This is forming a pathway of our religion to, to organize our walking around everyday life, the narrative that we go, hmm, because that's true, this is what I do. Because that's true, this is what I do. And all of us, again, have divisions and divides in what we claim to believe and what we actually, functionally, practically believe. The Psalms are the corporate way of realigning and readjusting all of that together so that the community of faith actually flourishes. So we've got two stanzas covered already. Now we're going to pivot. Verse 13 starts off with a very significant word, for. The first two attributes are preparing us for the third attribute. We've had his omniscience. We've had his omnipresence. Now we're going to talk about his omnipotence, his all-powerness. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I don't know if you've got a different translation. The term knitted there, it's not really knitted. It's more artful than that. It's more beautiful. It's, it's a strange word, which is why most English translations won't use it. For you embroidered me in my mother's womb. It's the same word that we're told again and again and again and again and again, like exhaustingly in the book of Exodus, when they're embroidering all the curtains and the fabrics in the tabernacle, how the artisans had to just get very precise and digital, and they had to embroider with very costly and expensive materials. David goes, yeah, that's what you did with me. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you think of your spouse that way? Your kids that way, your aging parents that way. Do, do you think of the guy in the purple minivan who cuts me off on Broadway every Thursday? I don't know how he knows. He's just always there. Short answer, no, I don't think of him that way. But it's being redeemed. You formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. <sighs> Whew. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You would almost expect King David to go, I praise you because I was a shepherd boy and I laid out in the darkness and I just counted the endless expanse of stars and the wonders of the cosmos. No. He thinks of himself rightly. He sees himself through God's eyes. Do you get that? He sees himself through God's eyes and he worships. Now, not in the fallen worldly sense of, my body's a temple, feel free to worship. Not like that. No, 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 no. Seeing who God is, is most profoundly demonstrated and manifest in what I am. Now, if we thought of ourselves that way, that would change our thoughts and reduce our need for therapy, and it would change how we related to one another. See, this is good religion, Psalm 139. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Again, he goes Hebrew Yoda. Wonderful. He puts it in the emphatic position. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Goes on, verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you. My frames, my skeletal system, the structure that holds me up. You know everything. There's nowhere I could go where you're not there. And you made all of this. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Let me talk about that for a minute. David's not dumb. He doesn't actually think babies come out of the earth's core, okay? This is poetic, artistic language. Israel was an agrarian society. They knew about animals giving live birth. They knew where babies come from. 
there were two areas in the Hebraic mindset, two, two places in their understanding of the world that were inaccessible. One was the center of the earth. The other was a woman's womb. You just can't, it's a mysterious thing. And, and candidly, I, I, I have no idea. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what's going on there. It's just the mysterious places. And David says, hey, it's an artistic way of saying, you, God, are the powerful one. You're the one who knows. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You knew everything. David declaring the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You see how he's kind of gone on a little progression? You, you, you know everything. Where can I get? I need to get away a little bit. And then he surrenders to it. You know everything. You are the one in whom all things are present. You are the one with all power. And now he says, how precious are your thoughts? I don't want to get away. I, I, I surrender that. I wave the white flag and I realize, oh, you're the one who is all-knowing. You're the one who is omnipresent. You are the one who is all-powerful. And I am not, I am not, I am not. And this is very good news. Now, David writes this about 3,000 years ago. But 1,000 years before him, another guy makes a declaration about God. The guy named Job, perhaps some of the oldest literature we have in all of human existence. In Job chapter 42, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's 4,000-year-old theology. Job himself had gone on a journey, right? So what this means, God is able to accomplish all things possible and actual, but he's not able to do things inconsistent with his character. Paul will talk about this in the epistles. God cannot deny himself. God cannot un-God God. That's the one thing he cannot do. He cannot lie. God can't one day just go, hey, I'm a bunny. No, God can't become a bunny because that would un-God God, and he can't un-God God. So can he do all things? Yes and no. And that's very comforting. You might remember when Mary is told that she's going to be the mother of Messiah, she questions, like, I don't understand. How can that possibly be? And the angel, who's just come fresh from the throne room of God, who still smells of heaven and has just got glitter shooting off of him in every direction. Remember in Luke's gospel, he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. All things are possible with him. And then we get to Revelation chapter 1. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty, in Greek, the Pantocrator, the one who is capable of all things. God is sovereign. His sovereignty is his omnipotence expressed. So there are some things to think about there for us. He uses his knowledge to perfectly and precisely, providentially provide for me and for you and for us. That's very good news. God's presence is always guiding and protecting us. That's very good news. And, of course, we see his power. God can do whatever he wants. It's good for us to be reminded of that. Now, very quickly, we're going to pivot to the fourth stanza because it does get dark in a hurry. It, it gets pretty radical and ruthless. But I need you to understand why. 
If there is such a God who exists, as has just been described, one who is omniscient, who is omnipresent, and who is omnipotent, then it only makes logical sense that he would be followed, worshipped, loyally, utterly. And so David says, I don't want to be associated with those that do not. That's why, apparently, there was a whole group of people during the time of David and his reign and his kingdom that were opposed to the sovereignty, to the knowledge, to the presence of God. And so David changes course here. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. He's being opposed. There are people who are not loyal to this alleged God. Oh, they might claim to be with their mouths, but their lives are walking a completely different path. Verse 20, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. That does not mean that 3,000 years ago there was a bunch of people in Israel walking around saying, God, it's not what it means to take God's name in vain. What it means is you attribute to God something he did not say. You don't like it when someone says that about you. Did you hear what he said? He said blah, 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 and you never said that. That really gets up your dander. God likes it even less. If you're going to say, thus says the Lord, you better be right. Well, there were people who were claiming, well, God says, God wants, God says, God wants, and David knows better. This is the inspired work of Scripture. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I don't want to be numbered with those people. I don't want to associate with those folks. I know who you are. I've thought it through. I want to adjust the walking around pathways of my life as if those first three stanzas are true, because they are. Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I'm just going to counsel you pastorally. That's not a letter jacket verse. Okay, don't put that on your letter jacket or your bumper sticker on your car. No, no, don't do that. Search me, O God. Now he's convicted. I don't want to be like that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. But you remember how we started? You have mined me, searched me, and you know me already. So it's this never-ending process of refinement, this never-fully-finished process of always adjusting, rethinking our thinking, and laying it before God. Reveal to me, God, the things that I am incomplete or incorrect about, because we all have it, and have the humility to be willing to let it go. There are some things that we're all wrong about. I don't know what it is, but we can sit down, you can buy me coffee, and I'll tell you all the things that you're wrong about. It's fine. I'm kidding. I won't do that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there are any grievous ways in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, that's an interesting Hebraism there. It could mean, as most English translations say it, lead me in the way everlasting, that which goes off into the future. It's a strange Hebrew word, olam. It can also mean lead me in the ancient path. Either direction. I kind of prefer that one. Adjust my thinking, my speaking, my feeling, my relating, my doing, my being to your ancient way that is actually the path everlasting. It's probably both and. Adjust my religion. Help me think theologically so that every encounter I, I experience, I'm thinking first and foremost about God, who he is, what he is like, and who he has made me to be. And I worship and as I encounter other people who are believers or who are not believers, I'm thinking theologically. That is the ancient path. It is the life that works. Do you see that? It is the life from antiquity that works. It is the life that goes on into everlastingness that works. 
That is God's power. That is God's plan. It's an invitation to intimacy, voluntarily and willingly relinquishing our independence and our control. We can't, but God can do whatever he wants. So let me just apply this very quickly, give us three very quick implications here. Number one goes like this. A right view of God produces a right view of self. Can't really think rightly about yourself until you begin to explore thinking rightly about God. Now, this is so massively important in marriages, in parenting, in just friend relationships, in, in work, in community, in church. To think rightly about God, then and only then do we begin to think rightly about ourselves. To put it another way, a high theology, we say this all the time around here, produces a low anthropology. There is a God, I am not He. That's important to be reminded of. A lot of us feel the pressures and burdens and strains to try to run our own world. I, I keep grasping to get back on the throne of my life. And then I'm reminded repeatedly that I am dangerously unqualified to run much of anything. But I sure keep trying. But I can't do whatever I want, whenever I want. Only God can. And here's good news. He's good. That's very good news. We're never really able to live our lives if we're still trying to be in charge. We try to do our best to run our lives, and then we continually fail, and then we feel like we're letting everybody down. But here's a newsflash. You're not actually holding anybody up. Did you know that? God is. You are not he. Neither am I. This, part, this passage is marvelously freeing to remind us that there's only one being capable of doing all that he does, and I am not him. And so this passage and consideration of God's attributes should lead us to humility, to think rightly about ourselves, comprehending his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence brings the rest of our world into focus. Now here's where our religion gets bad. Most of us at some point in our day are functional deists. This means that we sort of just believe that God started things off, but then he stepped away and he's generally disinterested in my individual life or my family life. He just sort of got things going. And there is a God, but he's not really involved. He's not interested. He's not intimately or experientially practicing with me. Or some of us think he is the God of the gaps. Huh. He just intervenes when things get really bad. But no, that's not our God. He is omnipotent over every single aspect of existence. Second point goes like this. God is good. I've already said it, but God is good. If we have a God of all power, all knowledge, and all presence, but he's not good, that is the worst possible news in the cosmos. But instead, it's actually the very best possible news in the cosmos. He is good all the time. Never ornery, never cranky, never fussy, never cantankerous. He's just good all the time. And candidly, this is how a lot of unbelievers will perceive God, that he just has good days and bad days, and you better catch him on his good day or he'll zap you. Well, thanks be to God, that kind of God does not exist. That's a comic book character. Or it's a mythological being that is not real. We shouldn't think that way about God. Scripture from start to finish is telling us that all things are under his supervision and his superintention, and yet God is in no way responsible for evil. He is good. And so even when bad things occur, we have the opportunity to know the entire story, as it were. Where Job did not know the whole story, we have the completed canon of Scripture. We get to know that God is in this, and he's over this, and he's superintending all of these things. 
We understand that God is working. We only have to look at the cross of Christ to see just how good this great and gracious God really is. We can trust him in all things and in all times and in every situation. We really can. Not just asking God to do the hard things while I do the important things. Oh, no. God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Third point, God is for us. A right view of God leads to a right view of self. God is good. And then thirdly, God is for us. Most Christians that I encounter don't functionally, practically believe this because they know they still have sin in their lives. And God must be at some level disappointed. God is not disappointed in you. God is not disappointed in you. He is for us. And I'm not just talking about God as a superhero Marvel character. I'm saying the God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. He is for you in ways that you and I will never fully understand. How he has been orchestrating the cosmos and eight billion lives behaving badly to work for their good. That's an amazing God. He is for us. He knows me intimately so that he can take care of me Perfectly. In other words, God wants my good even more than I do. And he knows what that is. And he actually has the power to accomplish it. And he will, even if it seems unpleasant to me at the time. We're so, we are worth so much to God that he will allow us to experience and endure hardships now. Have you noticed? Because he's always working all things, all things together for our good and for his glory. He's never holding out on us ever. Because God doesn't parent the way I do. He doesn't love others incompletely like I do. He's never holding out anything ever. You can believe that because it is truth. He's always active for our good. That is his love. See, God can do whatever he wants. That was David's heart and his head regarding his God. Therefore, all of his life. Now, that was three thousand years ago. But a thousand years later, I want to show you this super quick. We'll be done. A thousand years later, there's this group of ragtag people in Jerusalem, the very beginning fledgling church. And I want you to see how the church began to form around David's Psalm 139. They're doing their dead level best to do theology in community. I'm in the book of Acts super quickly. Acts chapter 4, I want you to see what happens here. Short story, the gospel is beginning to break forth. Peter and John are preaching uh, on Temple Mount. The, the, the disciples are still in Jerusalem. They're beginning to preach the gospel, and now they're beginning to receive opposition. Vile, ruthless men who are telling them to stop because they are saying that God says other things. It's the same thing that David was experiencing just a thousand years later. And they call in Peter and John, and they rebuke Peter and John. The next time they get called in, they get actually flogged. But Peter and John, after being rebuked by the Sanhedrin, the governing body of Israel, by the way, like what David used to be, they tell them to not speak about Messiah. And so Peter and John go back and they explain to the disciples and the gathered church what has been happening. Watch how the gathered church responds. It's so perfect. I've never, I had never really seen this until I started studying Psalm 139 to see, oh, this is what the church is doing. They're enacting Psalm 139. It's perfect. When they were released, Peter and John, 
they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, the gathered church, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, sound familiar? Declaring his potency. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, ha, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. I love this, by the way. This is the, the, the disciples and the apostles attributing Scripture to the inspiration of the Spirit through King David. Now, that's pretty solid right there. Now, they're going to quote from Psalm 2. It's the same idea. They say, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. See what they're doing? They're doing biblical theology gathered together. This is their religion. This is a good model for us. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now that's a strange verse, but what they're saying is, oh, we get it now. You are sovereign. You know all things. It was by your doing, by your hand, that you actually had Herod and Pilate in the same place at the same time together. Wow, God. They thought they were kings. No, you are the sovereign, omnipotent one. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know what they're saying? God, you are good, and you can do whatever you want. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of, of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Now, that's a tip-off that God agrees. And is that always going to happen here? No, I hope not. This building's old. It won't survive. <laughs> but this is a tip-off that God is affirming what they're doing. They're doing biblical theology together. This is good religion. The place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Why? Because they were walking the path of antiquity into everlastingness. That's what we've been invited to do. God can do whatever he wants. And what he wants is our good. Regardless of how it might appear, we can trust him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the morning, for the opportunity to explore who you are, what you've done, what you're like, and who you have declared us to be. Despite all the evidences that we have done day in, day out, from our rising to our sitting, from our coming to our going, all of the things that we have convinced ourselves, all of the accusations flung at us that are correct from our enemy, and yet, you know us, you have mined us, and you are for us, and you are good. And so, God, would you give us the gift of faith to trust that, to believe that, to walk as if it were true, to live in this world as if it was true, to look at this world as if it was true, to love in this world as if it was true. And, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that is still trying to be the captain of their soul and the master of their fate, would you, by grace, reveal to them that they are dangerously unqualified for that job, but that you are and that you're good would you give them the gift of life to walk in the path of antiquity into everlastingness? They would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light. There is no darkness to you. For the rest of us, Father, whose gaze has fallen, whose awe has leaked, would you remind us of your grandeur and your glory and your greatness? We would think rightly, more fully, more correctly, more completely about you. 
and that it would shape and impact and change our thoughts, our thinking, our feeling, our relating to one another. God, you are worth that and so much more. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.